You know what those wind chimes mean. Welcome back, everyone. Dynamics are what score writers use to communicate how loud they want a musician to play things. At the quiet end, there's piano. At the loud end, there's forte. There's also mezzo piano and mezzo forte in the middle, and pianissimo and fortissimo at the extreme ends. You mark fortissimo with two Fs, but I've seen people use three or even four. Seems like overkill to me, but let's ask the horns what they think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me for another year talking about music of all dynamics from pianissimo to fortissimo and beyond. We're kicking off 2020 with a widely requested rock epic that definitely has a lot of dynamics. So grab yourself a comfortable seat, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. You can always tell when you're listening to a good band when they're doing lots of dynamics. Um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you're not really quite as good, you're maybe focused on the notes and just playing in tune and getting everything to sound good. And the dynamics tend to come last when people are sight reading music a lot of the times. Dynamics aren't usually happening quite as much as when they've really got it dialed in. So when you hear a band that's just nailing, you know, forte pianos and really quick dynamic shifts together, you know they've really been practicing and they've got their stuff together. Getting really quiet as a band in particular is like one of my favorite moves. Count Basie's big band, they were the masters of this. You know, they'd be like, like they'd hit really hard and then they'd drop off really quickly. And most importantly, they do it as a unit. And whenever you hear a band do that, you're like, okay, these guys have been practicing. They've, They've really worked this out. So welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope that you had a good holiday. I certainly did. It was nice taking the month of December off, though it's also nice to be back. I'm excited to get back to it, get back to another year of talking about many more strong songs and uh, and sharing lots of musical insights and observations with all of you. I heard from a lot of people through the month of December, people sharing the show, people looking back on the year that was. Thank you all so much for the kind words and the words of encouragement. Also, extra special thanks to everyone who signed up to be a patron on Patreon. Um, Um, I've got a bunch of new patrons over the month of December. Part of that is because I added a new lower tier for people who just wanted to kick in a little bit. That was a kind of a widely requested thing. And uh, yeah, some of you took me up on that, which is great. You can find out more about that at patreon.com slash strong songs. We've actually met another goal, which means I'm working on a bonus episode that you'll all get to listen to. That'll be coming pretty soon. It's actually going to be about terminology. So if there's any music terms that I use on the show that you're curious or would like to have me explain, let me know. You can also send me questions for upcoming Q&A episodes in year two. You can send those questions to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at K-I-R-K Hamilton. And actually, you can find me on Instagram, too. I've been using Instagram again recently, and I'm going to be doing some kind of Strong Songs-related stuff here in year two, some episode teases. Uh, Some of you may have seen the tease for this very episode on my Instagram. So that's Kirk underscore Hamilton. You can find a link to all of that stuff in the show notes. All right, let's get into it. It's a new year, which means it's time to start big. This is one of the biggest and most well-known rock epics of all time. I'm psyched to talk about it on the show. It's such a well-known song that I could probably play like the first five notes of the acoustic guitar intro, and most of the people listening to this would know what it is. What five notes am I talking about? What song are we doing? What is that iconic guitar intro? Well, I mean, listen for yourself. (laughs) 
That's right, on this episode we're going to be talking about the hardest rocking song to ever also feature a recorder ensemble, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. There's a lady who's sure All it glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to heaven So there's a lot to get into with this song, which is an interesting one and kind of deceptively simple. Uh, There's less going on than in some other through-composed epic rock rock songs that we've analyzed on this show, Um, but it's also, it's got its own, it kind of vibrates at its own frequency, and there's a reason that it is, you know, the enduring classic that it is. So before we get into any of that, some vital stats, Stairway to Heaven was written by, of course, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, the guitarist and lead singer, respectively, of Led Zeppelin. The other two members of Led Zeppelin are John Bonham on drums and John Paul Jones, who plays keys and bass and also played recorders on this recording. It was released in 1971 on the album Led Zeppelin 4, which also, you know, includes a couple other notable Led Zeppelin tunes, including Black Dog, which I actually did a little bit of analysis of on a Q&A episode last year. But Stairway is definitely the centerpiece of this album. It's, you know, the longest track by far and the most dramatic and kind of it merges a whole bunch of musical elements that Led Zeppelin was playing with on this album into one kind of grand piece. there are a few concepts that I want to kind of lodge in the back of your mind while we talk about this song, which you probably know really well, but I at least hadn't thought about it in terms of like the big picture of this song, which is a lot simpler. Like I said, it's a lot simpler than I would have thought once I went ahead and really learned it. But it also is it's remarkable in how it's paced out. So the two concepts are dynamics and pacing. Pacing we'll talk about some when we talk about the arrangement and the song's form. Dynamics, on the other hand, now I talked about those in the intro, you know, you've got your pianissimo and your fortissimo, this song starts at a very, very low dynamic, and it just kind of steadily builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until what started here... has ended up here. So the journey from that very quiet intro to that very loud climax, the trip from pianissimo to fortissimo, is actually remarkably smooth in this song. It's a very long song. It takes its time getting from very quiet to very loud. There's some plateaus along the way, a couple of places where the harmony changes. But it does it pretty steadily, and it doesn't do a lot of backtracking. Once it gets loud, then it just kind of ends. So it's like, start as quiet as possible, and then slowly, steadily add things and build and build and build and and build and build until it's super, super loud and intense. All right, that's quite a climax on this song. We'll get there, don't worry. Let's start at the very beginning and let's begin where else but with that extremely well-known, iconic acoustic guitar part.
Now, this is a great and very distinct sounding riff for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's very guitar-y. The way that it works uses open strings in a way that, you know, feels like it was written on the guitar. So it works well on the instrument. It's not super hard to play. I think so a lot of people can learn it, but it sounds cool. And I want to talk about why it sounds cool. So let me pick up my guitar here. I'm definitely not Jimmy Page, so don't expect amazing guitar playing or anything. Definitely a saxophone player first. Uh, but I know this guitar part, like a lot of people know this guitar part. So let's go through it um, sort of a little a shape at a time and just see what it's doing. So the first shape is here. It starts with this. And then it goes here. And then it goes here. And then that's, that's kind of like the first three little shapes. And then the next three shapes are this one. And then this one. Definitely the tastiest one. And then it, uh, it ends with this shape. So what makes that sound so cool, so kind of distinct and iconic? Well, it's really a matter of, you know, the chord progression is part of it, but it's the way that Jimmy Page is playing it on the guitar, and specifically the way that the bottom note and the top note are moving. Now, if you've been a long-time Strong Songs listener, you will be familiar with the concept of contrary motion, and that's what's happening here. So contrary motion is when two parts, maybe a bass part and a melody, or like a sung melody and a counter melody, when two parts in the music are moving in opposite directions. And that's happening here. Uh, on the guitar, the bottom note in the guitar voicing is moving down, while the top note is moving up, at least for those first three shapes. So this song is an A minor. Let's just play it on piano. This is the first chord, and these are the notes that Jimmy Page plays. Now the next chord, the bottom note goes down a half step, and the top note goes up a half step. That's that contrary motion. It sounds like this. So just the bottom note there, it's going from an A to an A flat or G sharp. It's going from the root to the major seventh. Now that's kind of an unexpected place to go for your second chord. We don't have to get too into the theory. I think it's, it's technically like an E augmented chord, I guess, over G sharp. But it kind of gives it that minor major seventh sound. And it just, it gives it a kind of a more of that Ren Faire vibe that this intro has. You know, of course, the uh, recorders that come in, which we'll get to, the recorders really kind of emphasize the medieval vibe of this. But basically, that second chord also kind of sounds like chamber music. You know, this sounds a little bit like maybe a classical guitar piece at the beginning, which I think kind of, you know, emphasizes the kind of mythic vibe of this song right from the beginning. He's also playing with his fingers and not with a pick. And between that and, you know, the way he's he's really letting each note ring out, it just sounds more like a classical piece or more like chamber music than anything else on this album, even the tunes with acoustic guitar. So let's go through it again from the beginning on piano. It starts on that A minor. It's got an A on the bottom and an A on the top. And then the middle two notes actually stay the same. The bottom note goes down and the top note goes up. And then it happens again. The bottom note goes down again a half step, and the top note goes up again a half step, and we get a C chord. So through those three chords, the middle two notes stay the same, and we go from here to here 
to here. You can picture it as just four points. You know, it's four notes. The two points in the middle stay put, and the point on the top and the point on the bottom slowly move away from one another, which makes there just more space in general. So we've gone through those first three chords, and we're on the C. The C is over a G. Now the uh, top note stops going up, but the bottom note keeps going down in, uh, in half steps. So the next thing is a D chord over F sharp. And then it goes down yet again, and we get an F major 7th. That lovely F major 7th. Love those major 7th chords. Very lush. And then it just kind of rounds out with this like G that slides up to an A minor. So listen to Jimmy Page play it again, and I really want you to listen to the bottom note in what he's playing, because that's the one that just descends chromatically steadily from an A down to an F before he ends the phrase. And that sound, that steadily descending bottom note, I think that's what kind of unlocks the magic of this guitar part and why it sounds so distinct and cool. All right, give it a listen. Now, it's hard to overstate just how kind of iconic and well-known that guitar part is. Uh, it was the subject of a pretty good joke in the 1992 Wayne's World movie. Wayne has this electric guitar that he covets at the local guitar shop, and he goes in and picks it up and begins to play, of course, Stairway to Heaven, and the guy points at a sign over the door that says, No Stairway to Heaven. No Stairway. Denied. The joke, of course, is that everybody who walks into a guitar shop starts to play frickin' Stairway to Heaven, probably that, or like if they're in the acoustic guitar room, they start to play the Beatles' Blackbird, um, because those are just the guitar parts that everybody learns that sound just cool enough, you know? They're so the sort of distinct, but they're not that hard to learn. What's also funny about this joke is that in the, the um, VHS, you know, the home video version of this movie, he doesn't actually play Stairway to Heaven. Uh, this is what Wayne plays in this scene in the guitar shop. So the story behind this is that apparently in the theatrical release of the movie, which I did see, I was 12 at the time when I went and saw this movie in theaters, and in the theatrical cut, he plays Stairway to Heaven. But for the uh, for the home video release, they couldn't re-secure the rights for the first few notes of Stairway to Heaven. So they had to put in something else, which then totally kills the joke, because it doesn't make sense. He starts playing this weird riff that doesn't immediately sound like Stairway to Heaven. It's a really funny joke if he plays those first four notes, that A minor chord. But it doesn't really work if he just plays this. Like, that sounds like he's about to play a Jimi Hendrix tune or something. Pretty funny. My source on that is a Billboard interview. I'll link it in the show notes. I enjoy that those four notes are so iconic, both that the joke does work. I mean, you can hear the really joke really clearly in your head. And that it's just an A minor chord. I mean, it's not like a really complicated thing. It's not even that distinct. It's just like a really basic A minor triad with an A on top. But when you play it in that position on a guitar, everybody knows what you're playing. And the fact that Led Zeppelin wasn't cool with them using those four notes kind of proves the point that that opening arpeggio, while simple, is still iconic. So you know you've written a good guitar part when just the first four notes of it are distinctive enough that you can kind of make that sort of a claim. So when Wayne says, No stairway. Denied. He's writer than he knows. Of course, there is irony here in that the band Spirit, or the people who control the estate of the band Spirit, has this ongoing lawsuit against Led Zeppelin, saying that their song Taurus, which predates Stairway to Heaven, is similar enough that Led Zeppelin owes them some sort of a co-writing credit.
so the legal vagaries of this are a little bit beyond me. Though when I listen to that part, it's similar. And, you know, that's a pretty common chord progression to do that descending chromatic thing. But it's not the exact same. It doesn't even have the same first four notes. Um, actually, and crucially, it doesn't have the contrary motion we were just talking about. Um, on piano, this is the, the line from Taurus. And this is the line from Stairway to Heaven. They're pretty different, right? And you can hear it when uh, when you put it on piano because when they're not being played by like a fingerstyle guitar in the same position on the neck, it's just the music, and the music is actually pretty different. So like I said, you know, not an expert on these kinds of things. In general, I'm sort of against this kind of lawsuit. I don't really, I just feel like music is music. Just write your song. That's a common chord progression. Yeah, they sound similar, but the overall song is really, really different. I guess a jury agrees and found that way already, but it might be reheard at some point. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. You know what's a lot more fun than lawsuits over music copyrights? Recorder ensembles. So the first sound to join Jimmy Page's acoustic guitar on Stairway to Heaven is bassist John Paul Jones playing recorder. He's actually overdubbing himself here, and this track doesn't use very much overdubbing. It's interesting. Um, you know, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody came out only a few years after this in 1975, so it was like four years later, and that's like multi-track to the gills. Galileo! 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 Galileo This doesn't do a whole lot of overdubbing, actually. It's pretty straightforward. It just sounds like the band. There are a few times where John Paul Jones is playing Rhodes, keyboard, and bass. This is really the only place where they're really using the technology because, of course, he can't play, you know, multiple recorders by himself. This section is beautiful, and it's remarkable how long it goes on. It's just like acoustic guitar and recorders for almost a full minute before the vocals come in. So this beginning section, even though it's just two instruments, you know, well, it's a few recorders and an acoustic guitar, it's actually harmonically and musically the most complex part of the song, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, there's this fairly dense descending chord progression in the guitar, the recorders are in and they're kind of playing this intricately wound, you know, sort of interwoven series of parts. There's a lot happening. And this song grows more and more simple as we go until by the end, it's really just like three chords and they're rocking out super hard on it with just guitars, bass, you know, a little bit of keyboards and vocals so it's this is the most sort of rich the tapestry of this song is and then sort of sheds those layers as it gets going so once robert plant's vocals have come in it's really just him and then over on the left the acoustic guitar and over on the right the recorders there's no bass and in fact the bass note is being played by a recorder because john paul jones is playing i believe bass recorders on this so listen to that and listen for that low note that's actually coming out of a very low woodwind sound out of that recorder It's a beautiful sound. I've been kind of obsessed with the bass recorder lately because it can get those, you know, 
really low and really light, low sounds that sound, you know, it's a little bit lower than my flute can even go. It's a delicate sound, but a really cool one, and actually one that you may have heard recently if you're a big Star Wars fan and you've been watching the new Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian. That show features a very distinct character motif for its helmeted main character, and every time it plays, what you're really hearing is a bass recorder. They got some delay on it, but it's the same instrument. It's a cool sound, right? The first time I heard it, I was like, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? And I went and looked it up, and sure enough, it's a bass recorder. Actually, a few of them. The music for The Mandalorian is composed by Ludwig Joransson, who also did uh, Black Panther, a bunch of other Ryan Coogler movies. You know, actually, when I say that Stairway is the most rocking song to feature a recorder ensemble, I'm actually not totally sure on that. Okay, 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 I don't want to get too sidetracked by the extremely good music for The Mandalorian. Uh, Just let it be known that the tradition of using bass recorder effectively in cool, unexpected places has uh, has carried on almost 50 years later. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway So that collection of chords right there, that's like the first phrase of the verse. They do that a lot of times in this song, so it's worth getting your head around just what's going on there. We've already gone through the guitar part quite a bit and uh, looked at the recorder part. Combining that with the melody that Robert Plant is singing, you get something like this. really like a straightforward melody in A minor, except one nice thing that happens is that last part, you know, where he sings, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. That that note, buy, is an E, and that's the major seventh on that F major seventh chord. So he's really bringing out the sort of richness of that one chord that I think is kind of the magic chord of this whole chord progression. You know, I love major seventh chords, but I really think that when it lands on that F major seventh, that's sort of where the whole thing richens up in this very important way. Here comes the E again. Okay, so let's talk about this song's form. Definitely one of the distinct things about Stairway to Heaven. Now, a song's form is just sort of, it's also called the roadmap. It's like the skeleton, the outline of the song, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, maybe pre-chorus, intro, outro, that kind of thing. And you put those all together and you get what's called the form of the song. This song's form is what's known as through-composed, which means it doesn't actually follow a like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge kind of a thing. It just repeats sections over and over again and moves in one line 
from the beginning to the end. This is not the first through composed song we've talked about on Strong Songs. In fact, we've talked about two of the other most famous through composed rock epics, uh, the first being Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody and the second being Radiohead's Paranoid Android. Both of those songs are actually much more complex than Stairway to Heaven. And what makes Stairway to Heaven interesting, I think, is actually its simplicity. It starts with just one idea, you know, a verse and an interlude. Then the verse chords change a little bit. Then the melody changes a little bit. Then there's a guitar solo. And then they go out and they end it. It's really all there is to it. And it is a very long song that adds layers as it goes. But really, you know, the the framework is not complex. So, you know, first up, there's the verse, which we've been over in depth. This is what the verse sounds like. There's a sign on the wall, but she wants to be sure. Cause you know sometimes words have to mean. So they go through that a bunch of times at the top, and then eventually they kind of reprise the um, the guitar and recorders section. It's very nice sounding. Uh, Jimmy Page kind of plays these extra like arpeggios, plays some extra notes in his part, and he builds up to the first interlude, which is also the first introduction of some new instruments. I really like this interlude. It's a much more sort of static and spacious thing than the verse, which is doing that, you know, steadily descending, chromatic descending line that we've gone over. Um, It's kind of like this nice A minor seventh thing. And the instruments that come in, of course, Jimmy Page is overdubbing himself. So he's playing electric guitar over in the right channel while the acoustic guitar keeps going in the left channel. And John Paul Jones is playing what sounds like a Fender Rhodes or some kind of electric piano that's kind of in filling out the lower notes. He's not in on bass yet, but it's more just a Rhodes playing through that nice you know, that nice little chord progression. And with those new instruments in, they just take that back into the verse and do the verse again. There's a feeling I get when I look to the west and my spirit is crying Now here's the thing, Robert Plant is singing the same melody on the verse, but the chords have actually subtly changed, they've become simpler. Instead of that, you know, A minor to E to C over G thing, we're just on C major, and it just goes like C major down to G over B, A minor, and it walks back up, C major, G, and then F, A. So the, this is like one place where this song actually becomes a little bit simpler. The melody stays the same, but the chords are different. So instead of hearing this melody over this chord progression, you're hearing the same melody over this chord progression. Now that's pretty cool. That's called a reharmonization, and they've reharmonized the original melody with different chords. In jazz, they'll call that a reharm. If you want to sound really cool and you want to talk about a reharm, it's when someone takes an established melody to like a standard, you know, classic tune, and they play completely wild chords over it that still work with the melody, but are just very different. This is a pretty organic reharm. It just feels like he kind of tried singing the same melody he'd already been singing over this new chord progression, and it worked. It's subtle enough that it's actually easy to kind of just not even notice it. It just goes right 
right on by, which kind of underlines how subtly this song grows. It grows in a really organic way. Suddenly, you know, they're playing different chords behind the melody, but the melody has stayed the same. So if you're not listening really closely, you might not even notice. It just feels like they're still doing more verses. There's a feeling I get when I look to the west and my spirit is crying So this is another third verse, and there's been a sort of very logical progression through the song so far. We begin with the acoustic guitar on the left, the recorders on the right, Robert Plant enters in the center, he does the first verse, it's just recorders and acoustic. Then for that first interlude, you know, the the Rhodes comes in, the electric guitar comes in over on the right, he sings through the verse again, it sounds pretty different with these other instruments playing it. So far, to the listener at least, you're getting something new every so often, so it feels like, you know, you're taking steps on a progressive journey, which this song is certainly a journey. Now, however, it actually kind of just stays put for a surprisingly long time. We've done the first and second verses. There's another interlude after the second verse, which is pretty much the same as that first interlude, same instruments are in. There's like an extra electric guitar that plays a little bit, but basically it's the same sound. And so they do a whole additional interlude and then the whole third verse and it's all just the same. It's like a plateau in the middle of what is otherwise a steady climb. And I now find this verse really fascinating, actually. And it's whisper that soon if we all call the tune. The reason that I find this third verse interesting is because it just feels like it doesn't quite need to be there. It's extra in a way that I think emphasizes this song's unusual patience. Conventional wisdom would say that if you're steadily building a song and you're adding new elements on each verse, you want to keep your audience interested. And if you're going to have the drum and bass come in with a really great, you know, surprising entrance, which happens in a moment, you would want to do that in the same kind of a logical progression. You know, first you add the electric guitar and the roads, then you do a verse with those. And then on the next one, the drums come in and the bass comes in and you're kind of steadily adding things to keep listeners, you know, hearing new things at a steady pace. Led Zeppelin opted not to do that. And the third verse is just the same as the second verse. It just has different lyrics. And a new day will dawn for those who stand long and the forest will echo with laughter. Now it's kind of hard to communicate on this podcast obviously because we're listening to the song in little clips but at this point when this interlude is happening like I think this is where everyone is sort of just waiting for the drums to come in and they kind of thought they were going to come in you know a whole verse earlier so at this point you're kind of like okay okay yeah, yeah, like Robert Plant, he's singing. You know, the guitars sound nice, the vocals sound good, but it's time for the drums already. So the reason that's fascinating is that I think it works. You know, this song undeniably works. It's just an unusual choice. You know, I'm talking about conventional wisdom, whatever that means. And that really just means making it shorter, you know, removing extra extraneous things. And there's an argument that that extra verse is extraneous and that it doesn't introduce new musical elements. But that's not the point. It still works because it requires the audience, the listener, to just sort of relax and go with it. You have to be patient. They're taking you on a journey. Robert Plant is telling you a story. You have to just relax and listen to him. And it actually works beautifully so that when the drums come in, you're really ready for it. If there's a bustle in your head, don't be alone. 
Alright, so this is definitely where the song kicks up a notch in a number of ways. So I haven't really talked much about the lyrics, just because, you know, I, I usually focus more on the music than on the lyrics. But there are a couple of really great lyrics in the song, and that one I think is my favorite. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. It's partly just in the way that Robert Plant delivers it, that don't be alarmed now. What a great vocal delivery that is. Don't be alarmed now. Robert Plant, obviously one of the great swaggering singers of all time. I like him down in this register, in his sort of middle and even lower voice. He has that incredible scream, of course, that he gets into later in this song. That's kind of his signature sound, but I like him down here, and I love how he delivers that line. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alone there. The hedgerow, of course, is the row of hedges around your house, so if you hear a bustle there, you don't need to be alarmed. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. This is some more pagan imagery in this song. Um, just a, a fun collection of lyrics that I think have a lot of people looking up what a hedgerow even is. So at this point, John Paul Jones is over on the bass. The Rhodes is still in as well, so they've kind of overdubbed that. He's playing Rhodes on a separate track. But the most important new instrument, of course, is John Bonham. The driving heart of Led Zeppelin has come in on drums, which significantly increases the energy level of the track. Is he the driving heart or the beating heart? Is he a mixed metaphor? Who knows? Who can know? So remember the chords of the verse change in that subtle way and uh, they kind of reharmonized it so the melody was still the same but the chords were different. Now the melody changes too so the melody that Robert Plant is singing over that new chord progression is different. So if you've been keeping track that's the third time that the melody or the harmony of the verse has changed in this song and they're changing in a kind of a staggered way. First we had you know that original melody over the A minor you know descending chord progression that sounded like this. Then the chords changed, but the melody stayed the same, and it sounded like this. So then after the drums and the bass come in, those chords stay in place, but they change the melody. I think that's really cool because at this point they've completely changed both the chords and the melody of the verse. It's like not even the verse anymore. It's verse 2.0. But they've done it in a staggered way so it feels more organic. First they change the chords but the melody stays the same. Then they change the melody as well and then you're in a new section but you almost didn't notice yourself getting there. I think that's really subtle and really neat. Notably also, the song keeps getting simpler, and that actually continues through to the end. The chord progressions get simpler as the song progresses. The melody gets less complicated as the song progresses, which is pretty cool. You know, we've gotten to a new level of intensity. You know, the rhythm section is in, the bass and drums are playing, and also the harmony has changed, but it's changed to become simpler. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change. There's still plenty going on, it's just more harmonically straightforward than it was at the very beginning. I really like how Bonham shifts up to the ride symbol here, it adds a nice new texture. But of course from this interlude, they don't go on to the next section, they do yet another verse. Your head is 
So for a second time, when this song could have moved on to something new, they actually just repeat something that they've already done with no major changes. This is now the fifth verse. You know, we've gone through a lot of verses and interludes at this point, and the song has been going for quite a while. It's definitely a deliberate and very patient decision. It's, you know, they're saying, nope, we're just going to pace this thing out, really take our time getting to new sections, and as we introduce new elements, then we're just going to kind of plateau. So instead of a steady upward slope, it kind of is, there's a couple of major plateaus along the way. So by the end of that fifth verse, we're five and a half minutes into the song, well over the halfway mark, and it's time for the song to finally really surprise the listener with something completely new. Now, this section is really cool for a lot of reasons. It sets up the biggest, you know, tonal and mood change of the song. It sets up Jimmy Page's incredibly good guitar solo. Um, it's got this nice, big, open sound. The overdubbed guitars are letting these open chords ring. Um, wow, a kind of melody moves within those ringing strings. Really cool sounding, really dramatic. And also, the counting is pretty weird. Now, we've done counting breakdowns, a lot of different rhythmic counting breakdowns on this show, and I know how long they can take, so I don't want to spend too much time showing all the different ways that you can count this interlude, but I do want to point out the way that I count it anyways, the way I kind of think it's meant to be counted, um, even though you can obviously, you can divide it up however you want, I think you can just count this whole section in 4-4 time, in the same time signature as the rest of the song, very common time signature. It doesn't actually have any odd bars in it if you just count through. It's more that they turn the beat around at one point, but um, let me show you what I'm talking about. So the way I used to hear this interlude was I would hear... I would hear that third note as the downbeat. So like, so let me play just that part and count it that way, which I don't actually think is how they count it, but it is an understandable way to hear it. Here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So kind of like that. Um, that's an understandable way to hear it, but if you count it that way, you're actually going to wind up with things turned around when the actual beat comes in. Uh, let me show you that. Here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One. Wait, wait, what's happening? Now, I know that a lot of people who listen to strong songs are the exact kind of people who hear something like that and then get tripped up in that way and immediately think, okay, wait a minute, what's going on there? And want to go try to figure it out. It's a little tricky only because Led Zeppelin plays a little loose. And this is actually also true on Black Dog, which I, I broke that song down, the counting on like the sort of B section riff of Black Dog on an earlier Q&A. And part of the tricky thing there was that the guitar and the bass kind of rushed through the phrase. So it's like they're just playing a little bit loose. And as a result, you know, the, the groove is like a little bit elastic. That's also true here. And I think that's what makes this section a little bit tricky to count. So let me explain what I mean by that. The way that I believe this is meant to be counted is those initial three notes. Ba-da-dum. Instead of hearing it like the third note is the downbeat. Ba-da-one, two, ba-da-dum, four, like that, which is how a lot of people hear it. I think 
that actually the first note of those three notes is the downbeat. So let me demonstrate that. I'll count it in. One, two, three, four. Ba-da-da, ba-da-da. So I think it's right on the downbeat there. The reason that people don't hear it that way is that this song is a little loose because Zeppelin was just playing together in the studio. And while I think that is the logical place for the downbeat to be, there's kind of a gap of silence before it. It's easy to reorient yourself to a different groove. And considering that this song actually like changes tempo pretty significantly from the beginning to the end, you know, they're gradually speeding up the whole time. It would make sense that people would kind of jump ahead a little bit and hear the downbeat uh, where it's not really meant to be. Okay, so let me just cut to the chase here. I'm gonna try to count through this thing and instead of counting quarter notes, you know, like this, I'm gonna count eighth notes. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, like that. Cause I think that's like an easier way to initially kind of hear that groove. And I'm gonna count through it and you'll notice it actually really speeds up. They speed up together the second time through the phrase, which makes it get you know, pretty tricky. But I'm gonna count the eights the way that I kind of hear them just to demonstrate that this thing actually is technically um, just in four, four times the whole way through. All right. One, two, three, four. 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 One, two. So you can hear even there, it gets a little sweaty because the song is speeding up. Like I mentioned, this song, you know, it goes through several very slow accelerandos, and that's kind of the, the very classical, you know, formal term for when a band speeds up. This song speeds up, it starts at around 82 beats per minute, and it ends at like above 100 in places. So it picks up like 20 clicks, which is no joke. I mean, it, it definitely is like purposeful. They decided to speed this tune up, but it goes through several major tempo shifts, and one of them happens during the second part of that riff. So when you hear me counting, not only am I, you know, trying to keep the eighth note straight, it's also speeding up noticeably during the second part. So you're kind of just got to push ahead through it and keep the pulse, which is tricky. And they're all just listening to one another and they do it very organically. It's only really a challenge if you're a person sitting at home listening, trying to count along perfectly with it, because it's not that metronomic perfection that you would get from, you know, an odd meter section in a tool song or something. It's a much more stretchy kind of a thing where they're speeding up all together to a arrive at this guitar riff. Man, what a good opening riff. So this solo, Jimmy Page's guitar solo on Stairway to Heaven, obviously one of the most well-known and, you know, list-topping guitar solos in rock history. Uh, it's a really, really cool solo for a number of reasons. My favorite part, though, is that opening line. It's such a cool riff. I mean, it's very simple, but it perfectly outlines the new chord progression and just what a great opening statement. So, you know, the song had been coasting between just this verse interlude, verse interlude, verse interlude seemingly forever. Though, as I've pointed out, they're actually subtly changing things in the background. They changed the chord progression, then the drums and the bass came in, they changed the melody, then that odd counting interlude happens, and then things become even more intense and even less complex. So we've gone from this at the very beginning, to this partway through. To this for the guitar solo in the outro. Which 
which is just about the most straightforward hard rock chord progression you can have. It goes from A minor down to G, down to F, and then back up to A minor. It's just those three chords, A minor, G, and F. Very straightforward, especially compared to the chords that were on that initial verse. You know, A to that G augmented, to the C over G, to the D over F sharp, F major seventh. It was a much more lush, rich kind of thing happening in the initial verses. At this point, we're just rocking. So the riff that Jimmy Page plays at the beginning is really cool because it's just kind of like an A minor pentatonic thing. You know, this is what it sounds like on piano. But what I like about it is if you put those bass notes underneath it, he's outlining those three chords, the A minor, the G, and the F. He's outlining the chords really well, and the line kind of ends on an F, which is the one kind of unusual note. It just matches up perfectly with the harmony. It's a great and very bold and strong opening statement. From there, it's just a bunch of really good rock guitar licks played well. love that drum fill. That fill actually sets up one cool thing. There's kind of a new section in this solo. It's not like solos really exactly have sections. I mean, it's just repeating those same three chords as he solos. But there is something cool that happens where he does a little bit of interplay with his own guitar parts that he's overdubbed. So after Bonham plays that fill, you know, the good old higgada, 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 bugada. <laughs> Here are strong songs. We have thump, pop, sizzle. We also have higgada, bagada. So anyway, after that fill, they introduce a new guitar part. This is over in the right channel. And it's this, which is really cool, partly because it's just a new sound and a new kind of texture, and it sounds neat. But it's also cool because Jimmy Page purposefully phrases his solo around it. So that'll ring out in the right channel, and then he kind of answers it, almost like a call and response between the two guitar parts. The solo's been going on for a little while. It's a you know pretty lengthy solo, and by introducing this new element at this point, it kind of gives the solo this new final chapter. So listen for that over in the right channel. Great solo, man. I mean, he just, he places it so perfectly. It's very carefully paced and very melodic. He puts everything in a kind of clear place. He's not just aimlessly shredding. He really builds to a couple of clear climaxes. And the decision to put that second guitar part in, that ba-na, ba-na, is really smart because it actually kind of mellows things out a little bit before they build back up to Robert Plant's entrance. So it isn't just a steady crescendo. The energy shifts a little bit when that part comes in. And I like that a lot. So, of course, this guitar solo is paving the way for Robert Plant to come in. He enters with his signature yowl, super hard. And this is actually the only place in the whole song that there's any vocal overdubbing. Road, 
So there are actually two, I'm pretty sure it's two um, tracks of Robert Plant singing here. It kind of sounds like one because he's singing the exact same thing, but you can hear it in the releases. Sometimes the tracks will just be a little bit different, like the takes will be a little different. He'll release one a little bit earlier. And so once you know that you're hearing it, you can kind of tell it's two of him, which just gives him this doubled up, much more intense sound. there's another cool thing going on here that I really like. Uh, I never noticed this until I started listening for this episode, but there's another guitar part that enters partway through here, and it's in the middle, and it's this like ascending line that Jimmy Page plays kind of in the background. Listen for it. It's right in the middle. I'll play along with it this time. Cool little extra layer, you know, in between the electric guitars, the electric bass, the drums, the the usual stuff playing the groove. It's just that little counter melody that I dig and hadn't heard before. So this whole section is keeping the same chords from the guitar solo, just A minor down to G down to F, then it sits on F for a second, then walks back up past G to A, and it's just going back and forth um, while Robert Plant wails. So it's been steadily increasing in intensity, but it's actually been pretty subtle how they're doing it. This isn't, you know, the difference between the Galileo Scaramouche part of Bohemian Rhapsody and the beginning soliloquy on piano. It's kind of all just been moving slowly with, you know, those two plateaus that I talked about. But by this point, they're going closer to 100 clicks, you know, 100 beats per minute instead of 82, which is where they started out. So it's much faster. It's definitely much louder. This is one of those tracks that makes the case for not overcompressing things. This isn't a subject I'm going to get into on this episode, but this was mastered for vinyl. This record came out in 1971. If you look at the waveforms of this album, they start. it starts very, very quiet, and it ends pretty loud. And because of that dynamic contour, the song has this feeling of journey to it. If this album had been released today, or really if it had been released in like the 1990s, the sort of peak of overcompression, the whole album would be much more jacked up and compressed. Again, not really something I have an expertise in. I'm not a mastering engineer, and actually, because I'm compressing this show, you're not even getting a full sense of it listening here. I mean, I'm bringing up the levels on some of those intro segments so that you can hear them more easily, but if you listen to this thing, especially on vinyl, it is wild how super quiet it starts out and how big and full-throated it gets by the end. But again, the way that they achieve that growth, it's not by adding a whole bunch more instruments. You know, we've gone through it, and they've added, there's a few places where they add a new layer, the drums come in, electric guitar comes in, but they're not like dramatically changing the song. It's just that they themselves are playing louder and singing higher and louder and playing faster. So as the song has just slowly gotten faster and louder, by the end, you're kind of galloping along when at the beginning, it was this very kind of pensive, quiet space. So when it's time for John Bottom to really kind of bring the tune to its ultimate climax, it's when he plays those hits along with the bass and the guitar, and he sets that up, that's like the emotional and kind of energetic peak of the song. Here we go. Man, 
so just a word about Robert Plant's vocals there. That, he just lets it all hang out on that final note. And it's cool because throughout that section, you can really start to hear that he's doubling. It's a little bit chaotic. You can hear both of the parts. But then as he hits that final note, and he like holds it, he, the one doubled part drops away. And you can just hear his one voice just carrying it through and carrying it and carrying it. And he kind of fades out in a pretty beautiful way, really. Like, so listen back for that. It starts, it's kind of two voices screaming together, but then one of them just carries on ringing out. The way that he ends that note, he kind of, you know, he does this really theatrical walk down. It's a kind of singing you'll hear all over the place now, but Robert Plant really perfected it. More than anyone, actually, I hear a lot of that in uh, Jeff Buckley's singing, one of, my, one of my favorite singers of all time. Like, listen to this clip from Jeff Buckley's Grace. listen to plant again on stairway and I mean, you can draw a direct line between the one vocal performance and the other one many years later Which makes you think of this, uh, there's this really cool live Jeff Buckley album, um, Live at Cine, and it's just him and a guitar, and it's it's incredible, man. If you want to listen to a guy and realize what it was, what a loss it was that he died as young as he did, listen to that live record. It's just him kind of riffing and talking. There's like nobody there, and he's just going off. And there's this really brief part in the middle of the show where he makes a funny joke about Stairway to Heaven. He sort of plays a riff and says it sounds like classic rock radio, and then he, he does this little bit. That's, it always means like classic rock. Like, you know, you're in somebody's car, and like, oh, it's classic rock station. Because after, like, you turn it on, the first thing you hear is like, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. <laughs> so he can kid all he wants, but you can definitely hear the Robert Plant and Jeff Buckley singing, just like you can hear him in a lot of other singing. And the way that they climax this song with him just holding that one pure note before walking it down just rocks. So from here, the band just kind of rocks out, the guitars take the lead, and then they do a big slowdown into the final phrase of the song. Nothing sums up the dramatic dynamic contrast of this song more than that ending, which is just completely isolated solo voice fading out to a really quiet note that you really just, you almost can't hear unless you have headphones on and it's turned up. The absolute loudest moment of this song quickly gives way to the absolute quietest. Stairway to Heaven is a study not just in contrasts, but in organically developed contrasts. 
You can imagine a version of this song that's a minute or two shorter, that tightens up the arrangement and cuts sections that don't add clear new elements, but that version misses a crucial aspect of what makes the song work. Pacing doesn't just mean maximum efficiency, it's more than that. This song takes its time, each new section goes on longer than it might have. As a result, all four musicians are able to be just as patient with how they organically develop and grow their groove. It starts slow and gets steadily faster, it starts quiet and gets steadily louder, and by the time it reaches its climax, the listener can't help but be carried along. Stairway to Heaven is a great song that achieves its greatness not only through great musicianship, memorable melodies and all that, but by having the patience to take its time getting where it's going. And man, does it get there. And that'll do it for my analysis of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. That'll also do it for the first episode of the second year of Strong Songs. I hope you're as excited for that year as I am. I've been planning out what I'm going to do, taking a kind of a broader look at the year than I did last year. So I'm looking forward to talking about a bunch more cool music of all different kinds of genres, all different time periods, all different kinds of artists. It's going to be really cool. As always, you can reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, or on Instagram, Kirk underscore Hamilton. Thank you to everyone who backs this show on Patreon. To find out more about how to support me making this show, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. This episode's outro soloist is me, because I've never actually done one of those before. So stay tuned for me, and I'll see you in two weeks with yet another strong song. Strong song.